come now to the book of Judges. So if you'd like to be thumbing through the Old Testament until you get there. Book of Judges. Uh, just to tie in with where we were last time. Joshua, who has led them into the Promised Land, is dead. Along with all the leaders who worked with him while he was alive. And what we have in the book of Judges is an account of the following 300 years of Israel's time in the Promised Land. So from where we were last time, Joshua is dead and all the people who were leading Israel with him, they're dead. We're now going to look at, in the book of Judges, the next 300 years of Israel's history. And it's a great contrast to the book of Joshua. In the book of Joshua, we saw Israel as a nation largely faithful to the Lord and largely strong and victorious. Um, in this book, we're going to see the opposite. In this, in this book, we're going to see Israel unfaithful, we're going to see weakness, and we're going to see defeat. In many ways, it's the exact opposite of the book of Joshua. And the pattern that we're going to see, and we kind of hinted at this last time, is very much that when there is godly and strong leadership, then God's people are faithful and strong. When there is no godly and strong leadership, then anarchy and rebellion prevail. And what we're going to see in this book is, is, is a graph, and it's going to go up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. Faithfulness, defeat. Faithfulness, rebellion. Faithfulness, anarchy. All right? Up and down, up and down. So in, in chapters 1 to 2, you, you, you have very much a, a link back with the book of Joshua. Um, it kind of links the two histories. And that what you've got in, in the, the first two chapters is, is the account of the fact that, that when Joshua died, the tribes, they'd all gone to their allocated bit of the Promised Land. And, um, and they were to, to drive out and destroy all the remaining Canaanites. Uh, in the book of Joshua, most of the Canaanites they kind of dealt with, all right? But there, there was still warfare to do. They, they still had a lot of mocking up to do. And that each tribe had to, you know, sort of go to their various bit of the land and, and finish off the Canaanites who lived there. And, um, and what happened was that, that Israel failed to do that they failed abysmally in the mopping up operation. So at the end of the day, they should have driven all the Canaanites out, but lots of the Canaanites remained. And, um, and the result being is, is, is that each tribe ended up with some of the land that was allotted to them, but not all of it. So each of the tribes had a bit of their land, but were still surrounded by Canaanite nations within the land. And, um, and this, of course, was going against what God has shown them. God has shown them very clearly that they were to keep fighting until all the Canaanites were destroyed. And they didn't. They, they settled for partial victory. All right. And, of course, a particular result happens. And what happens is that rather than having kept fighting until the enemy was completely destroyed, because they stopped too soon, each tribe was surrounded still by Canaanites in their particular area. And of course the result 
is that because there were Canaanites there for Israel to keep mixing with, again and again and again, Israel ends up being contaminated in every way by the Canaanites who were left in the land. They kind of mixed in with them. They married, completely forbidden, but they married um, into the Canaanite tribes. And what happened, they were affected socially, but the worst of the lot, they ended up worshipping the idols of the Canaanites which was the thing that God had warned them against again and again and again. So what happens is, and this is the cycle, this is the pattern that we're going to see in the book of Judges, and here in the first two chapters it's kind of, you know, outlining this, is that Israel ends up worshipping the idols of the Canaanites, unfaithful to the Lord. As a result, God's judgment then falls on them. They are then given into the hands either of nations that invade from outside of Canaan, or they're subdued by the Canaanites within the land. But rather than being top dog, they keep ending up being oppressed and being, you know, kind of like slaves and, and, you know, and stuff like that. And so when that happens, they cry out to the Lord in repentance because they don't like being under judgment and, and then they, they get so low that then they realise, oh, this is because we've sinned and so they, they cry out to God in repentance. And, uh, and in answer to that prayer, God raises up men and women uh, referred to in the book as judges through whom they are delivered. You know, these judges lead them against the people who are oppressing them and overcome them, get military victory and, um, and sets them free. And then as long as each particular judge remains alive, leading Israel, or leading whatever part of Israel they were raised up in, as long as that judge lives, for the duration of their life, that the nation or that bit of the nation are faithful. As soon as the judge dies, bang, they fall back into idolatry, mixing in with the Canaanite, and this, on and on and on, this is the, the cycle that we're going to see. So in some ways, I mean, these judges, what, you know, they're mini-saviors? Uh, you know, they're kind of like prophets, they're, you know, but they're referred to as judges. They're kind of like, you know, the leaders who are raised up to, uh, um, you know, to get Israel out of the, the hole that, uh, that, that she keeps falling in. And uh, we're going to see, in the book of Judges, this, well, well, we're going to see 12 judges, okay? Uh, I nearly said we're going to see the stories of 12 judges. We're not, because some of them are just mentioned. Um, you know, but some, we get their stories in uh, great detail, others just get a mention. Um, don't assume for one moment that the 12 judges that we're told about here were all the judges during that 300 year period. I'm sure there were others, but at least we're given, you know, sort of like mention of 12 of them. So basically, uh, as we go through the book, this is what we're going to be seeing, the, uh, the raising up of 12 judges uh, to set Israel free. Right, okay, so now we get into chapter 3, and now we start, as it were, the chronology. Chapters 1 and 2 has given us the link with Joshua, right, and has kind of set the scene, the pattern, all right, for the book of Judges. And now with chapter 3, if you like, we begin the story, the chronology, we begin the, the actual history. And uh, um, what we have in chapter 3 is that Israel intermarries with the various Canaanite nations spread throughout the land, all the tribes are doing it, you know, so Israel as a nation intermarrying and they end up worshipping the gods of the Canaanites. So now Israel as a nation breaking the commandments all over the place, uh, being completely unfaithful to the Lord, worshipping idols, alright? And uh, this goes on for some years, as a result God hands them over to judgement. And uh, the actual judgement that they're handed over to 
um, is the um, a guy called, called Kushan Rishutain, who was the king of um, Aram Naharaim. Now that that rhymes, but I'm not going to try and uh, you know sort of do any poetry in regards to it. But 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 King Kushan Rishutain, all right, of Aram Naharaim invades. This he's from outside of the Promised Land. He invades and um, he, he kind of oppresses Israel and kind of gives them a really, really hard time. Um, Aram Nahar, Naharaim, you're looking at Mesopotamia, northern Mesopotamia, or modern-day Syria. All right? that, that's where this, this guy with his army came, came in for. And for eight years, for eight years, Kushan Rishatayim and his army oppressed Israel and gave them a really bad time. And so eight years of that was enough for them, and so they cry out to the Lord. You know, Israel is a nation. They're repenting. They're crying out to the Lord for help. And uh, and in answer to their prayer, uh, God raises up Judge Number One, who was a bloke called Othniel. Now, Othniel, all right, had a quite a famous relative, in fact, because Othniel was Caleb's younger brother. So we're right at the beginning of this time period. Caleb, do you remember? Um, Joshua and Caleb were the two spies out of the twelve who said we can go into the promised land, no problem. And you remember that Caleb and Joshua, the only two who came out of Egypt, survived the wilderness and then went in to take the promised land because they were faithful, whereas the rest of the nation were unfaithful. So really, Joshua, Caleb was the joint leader all through the time of Joshua. Caleb was joint leader with Joshua. And here, Othniel is Caleb's younger brother, all right? So he came from a good family. You know, we're, we're talking about a good, good kind of spiritual pedigree here. Um, and what happens is that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. That, that phrase now begins to be used a lot in the Bible. And, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Othniel, and uh, basically he leads Israel to military victory um, against Cushan Rishatayim and his army. We're not given any great details, um, but all we're told is that as a result of this, he gets Israel together, and they are given a military victory over Cushan Rishatayim. So, the oppression comes to an end, Israel has repented, they're restored, and for 40 years, Othniel leads Israel. So he becomes like the leader of the nation, sort of like a Joshua-type figure again. And uh, for 40 years, he led the nation, uh, during which time they were faithful to the Lord. So they've gone from being unfaithful, no good leadership, now God raises up leadership, now under that leadership they're faithful, and um, they, they're at peace. You know, they lived in the land in peace, unoppressed by other nations for the 40 years during which Othniel was alive and led them. Then Othniel dies, and before you know where you are, Israel intermarrying with the Canaanites, and they're into idolatry. So again, pattern happens all over again. God judges them, and he hands them over to Eglon. Now Eglon was the king of Moab, and Eglon of Moab oppresses Israel for 18 years. So this, this, this judgment kind of goes out, goes on for a bit longer. And um, Eglon, Moab, this is, so far, Kushan Rishatayim and Eglon from Moab, these are nations from outside of the Promised Land. They're coming in and invading. So, for 18 years, Israel getting beaten up by the Moabites. Um, they cry out for the Lord. They, we've had enough of this, so they cry out for the Lord. Isn't it funny how um, getting a bashing is often what does 
bring us to our senses, isn't it? You know, I mean, is, is, isn't it sad that this is the way it is? It was only because they, they were so wearied of the judgment they were under that, that they came to the conclusion, and it's a correct conclusion, that is actually more blessed to be faithful than it is to rebel. I know that rebelling and giving into your sinful nature, it looks like the best thing to do at the time, doesn't it? But it never is, it's a lie. It's an absolute lie, our hearts deceive us. And when we're under the impression that, oh, it's easier to not be committed, it's easier to, you know, to just hold a little bit back for me, that is actually a lie, it isn't. It is easier to be totally sold out to the Lord, in fact, in the long run. And it's sad, isn't it, that it's all the problems of not being sold out, that it's those problems that bring us back to really being sold out, you know, but the Lord understands, it's the way we are. So, anyway, 18 years and they're crying out, Lord help, and so the Lord then raises up judge number two, uh, a bloke called Ehud. Alright, so, so this bloke Ehud is raised up. Now, basically what we're told about this and, and how he delivered is Israel, uh, it was very much uh, a, a case in the ancient world that uh, if, you, if you were able to kill the king of the nation you were at war with, then basically the war was over. You know, so I mean if a king was killed on the battlefield, I mean basically the war was over, so if the king was dead, the war was lost. Now, what happens is that Ehud tricks his way into an interview with Eglon on his own. So he uses trickery, a little bit of a spy story really, but he uses trickery and he gets in there and he ends up alone with Eglon, alright? And um, only he's got his sword with him, hidden away. And so it's all over very quickly, he basically just takes his sword out and he runs him through. Now, you get important little details sometimes in the Bible. And there's just a little detail that we're given here, all right, about this, because Eglon was, was fat. I mean, he was a guy who needed to be on the F-Plan diet. And what it says is that when, when um, Ehud shoved his sword in Eglon, it says that, 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 that his, his, his fat folded over the shaft of the sword. <laughs> so, so the sword literally vanished inside of him, so it went you know, and sort of vanished. So the whole sword was in Eglon, so he was so fat. So there's, there's good reason to get on a diet. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so therefore, because Eglon had, had been killed, military victory so, soon followed. And uh, so once, once again, you know, Israel is, is now at peace. And um, they remain under Ehud's leadership for 80 years, he led them. Um, and during that time, they, they, they had, had peace. And, uh, you know, so, so that, was, that was quite, quite good. Um, then, of course, he died and it all happens again. And uh, judge number three uh, comes on the scene, a bloke called Shamgar. Now, we're not told anything about Shamgar at all. We're not told any details of who was oppressing Israel or how Shamgar delivered Israel. We're just told that Shamgar was the next judge and that he delivered Israel. But the only detail we're given is that he slew 600 Philistines with an ox goat. So, perhaps one could take it that at least from that, the oppressing na nation, we can say it was the Philistines, but that's all the detail that we're given about Shamgar. Um, now we come on to chapter 4 and 5, and uh, the, 
Chapter four starts off with the death of Ehud, who was judge number two. I mean, Shamgar just got a mensch because, you know, sort of like, you know, no details. But with chapter four and chapter five, we're going to do them together. It starts off with the death of Ehud. That was judge number two, you know, one who reigned for 80 years, you know, sort of ruled over Israel. So Ehud is dead. Um, the same pattern, apostasy, um, they get into idolatry. And, um, and God hands them over to um, a guy called Jabin. Now, Jabin was an actual Canaanite king. So far, the two nations that Israel has been handed over to thus far have been from outside of the Promised Land. But now, the judgment, you know, the, the turn of the screw, the judgment just gets that little bit more painful because now they're subdued by the Canaanites, all right? So, so the attack is now coming from within the land, which was a whole lot dodgier for them. And, uh, and, and Jabin was a Canaanite king, and uh, he oppresses Israel um, for 20 years. And um, his military commander was a bloke called Sisera. Um, and Jabin basically left all this to Sisera. Although Jabin was the king, the story is very much about Sisera, who, who conducted all the military campaigns. And so basically, Jabin's army, under the uh, command of Sisera, oppress Israel for 20 years. So, so now, this judgment is a bit longer. We had eight years, 18 years, now it's 20 years. And uh, after 20 years, um, Israel cry out to the Lord. Um, now, God raises up a prophetess called Deborah. And Deborah, speaking out the word of the Lord as the prophetess, um, tells a bloke called Barak, so Deborah and Barak are Jews, all right? Deborah, a prophetess, brings the Lord's word to a guy called Barak, who was a friend of hers, they knew each other. And she told him that he was to get an army together and that if he did, uh, God would give him victory over Jabin, the military commander, and the army. Um, but Barak's response was uh, kind of, what would we say, limited response. He was obviously a bit timid. And basically, he said that he wouldn't do that unless she went with him. So basically, what he was saying is that he, you know, I mean, don't know what the relationship was between them, but basically he was saying, I need you to hold my hand. He, he couldn't just receive the word of the Lord and go and do it. He said to Deborah, look, you've got to come with me or I'm not going to do it. And uh, now she reluctantly agreed to do that, but pointed out to him that if she was to go with him, that the, the victory would then be assigned to her and not to him. And the Lord wanted it to be assigned to him, to Barak. So what you've basically got is that Deborah, a prophetess, who was the mouthpiece of the Lord to Barak, Deborah basically becomes judge number four, whereas it should have been Barak. Do you see what's happening here? Barak does his bit, but in effect, although he was supposed to be the judge, he really needs to be all the time hiding behind Deborah and basically following her lead. So what happens is that Deborah actually becomes the judge, whereas the Lord wanted Barak to be the judge. And, uh, you know, but anyway, an army is got together and uh, they attack 
uh, Jabin and his army, and the army is destroyed. So, you know, King Jabin loses his army, and obviously in this battle, it's being led from King Jabin's side by Sisera, who was his military commander. So Israel wins the battle, all right? The army is defeated, but Sisera escapes. The military commander, he escapes, and he does a runner. Very wise. If you can have it away on your toes, that's a good time to do it when the Jewish army's after you. So he has it away on his toes, all right? And he thinks he's safe, and he escapes to um, a Kenite encampment. And a woman he knows, who's a Kenite, um, looks after him. So he's, he's escaped, all right? And uh, he, he comes across this woman called Jael, all right? And she's a Kenite, um, a Kenite. And therefore, he thinks that she is safe because the Kenites weren't Jews. So he's being harbored by her in her tent. And he thinks that he's safe, that she's protecting him. But it might be significant to remember that Moses married a Kenite. Now, that could well be the reason why it transpires now that Jael, this woman, the Kenite, the Gentile, who was harboring Sisera, Sisera thought she was on his side, because obviously he was Gentile as well. But he discovers now, very much to his cost, that she wasn't on his side at all. She was on Israel's side. And that's why I mentioned that Moses had married a Kenite. That might be the reason why. So what happens is he um, is fast asleep in her tent. All right, you know, th thinks he's nice and safe. And um, what she does is she she gets a tent peg and a mallet, and she hammers the tent peg through his forehead while he's asleep. And I think we can safely say that nothing like that had ever entered his head before <laughs> and so Cicero comes to this this you know rather nasty end and um, the Israeli army then went on to completely destroy Jabin and his entire kingdom and um, and from that point onwards Israel is then led for another 40 years by Deborah as Israel's judge and whilst Deborah is leading them uh, they, they have peace, and uh, also at the end of chapter 5 you get this, you know, the victory song that Deborah sang, and, uh, you know, it's good to read, sort of like a, a sung prophecy, really. And, uh, you know, so at this point now, for 40 years, Israel is, is very wisely led by a woman, you know, who, who leads them. Um, you know, but it's interesting to note that clearly Barak was God's choice, but Barak deferred to her and God allowed it, so no problem there. Right, chapter 6, uh, Deborah dies, and would anyone like to hazard a guess what happens now? Yes, Israel gets into idolatry. And as a result of this, God hands them over to the Midianites for seven years. And uh, it's at this point that judge number 5 is raised up, a guy called Gideon. And uh, at, this, at this point, the Midianites, the, their oppression of Israel was so bad that a lot of the Israelites were actually living in hiding in caves. You know, a lot of them went into hiding, and a lot of the population were living in caves. I mean, they were living like animals. You know, that, that's how bad uh, the oppression was. And, uh, and so they, they, they cry out to the Lord. 
At which point, uh, a prophet, who, who isn't named, he's just an unknown prophet, but he, he comes on the scene and he declares to Israel, you know, presumably by travelling around and you know, sort of telling all the people, that the reason for this continuing cycle that they keep ending up oppressed was that they keep rebelling against the Lord. I mean, obviously they'd have known that, they had the scriptures, but I mean, he was raised up, you know, to, to say, look, you know, don't you realise why this is happening? It's because you keep rebelling against the Lord. And so through him, God reminds them why, that it needn't be like this, but, but, but it was because they kept rebellion. Rebellion. Anyway, the Lord appears to Gideon, who was himself in hiding. He was in a secret threshing floor and that. And, um, you know, sort of like, you know, cowering away. And, and, and the Lord actually appears to him. You know, one of those times when the Lord appears as a man, you know, Jesus in his pre-existence, and um, calls him a mighty warrior. This is a classic example of, the, you know, the Lord sees us through the eyes of faith. He sees us what we can, he sees us as what we can be and what we're going to be. He doesn't necessarily see us as what we are. So here's Gideon cowering away from the Midianites, and the Lord appears to him and says, Hello, mighty warrior. You know, Midian, Gideon kind of scratches his, you know, and, uh, and tells Gideon that he's with him. So the Lord appears to Gideon, he says, Hello, you mighty warrior, I am with you, you see, which is, you know, kind of, you know, great. I mean, anyone else would say, Praise the Lord, wouldn't they? Anyone else would say, This is great. Anyone else would be encouraged. Gideon, no. Gideon, his response is, well, if that's true, why are we in such a mess? That's, that's, that's what he says to the Lord, in effect. So, you know, I mean, here's a guy who lacks some of what you might call the positive graces of faith. And, uh, you know, but nevertheless, he's, he's God's choice. And uh, the Lord commissions him as the next judge of Israel, and tells him that he's going to judge his, his people, um, to which Gideon makes every excuse he can think of why it ought to be someone else and not him. But the Lord insists. Uh, now, most people, when the Lord insists, say, oh, all right, Lord, all right. Gideon, now, the Lord is standing in front of him. I mean, just get this right, the Lord is standing in front of him. Gideon now says, right, Lord, show me a sign. Now, <laughs> if, if the Lord has said, um, what more do you want? <laughs> We, we could perhaps say, you know, here's God standing in front of him, saying, I commission you, you're going to be the next judge. And it's Gideon saying, show me a sign. How do I know this is true? You know, huh. Um, but anyway, you know, the Lord says, okay, I'll give you a sign. And so what happens is um, Gideon makes a meal. Man off my own heart, always thinking about food. Um, Gideon makes a meal, he lays it on the altar and fire comes down and consumes it. So he gets a bit of the old fire from heaven. So, so he's got the Lord standing in front of him and a little bit of fire coming down from heaven now. So he's, he's kind of happy that the Lord has called him to, um, you know, to be a judge. And, um, and then the Lord tells him that he's got to destroy all the idols in his father's house. Because he lived with his dad, old Gideon did, and, uh, you know, all the idols in the house. So the Lord says, right, you know, I want to destroy all the, all the idols. And, uh, and what Gideon did, he did it at night. He wouldn't do it during the day, so he didn't want to get caught. So he did it at night, because he was frightened of, of like, the locals. But obviously, they, they found out, you know, the next day. And uh, they, they, they all turned up at, at, at his house, like, you know, wanting to, to kill him, you know, because he'd been destroying idols. And, uh, but at that point, his, his dad actually sided with Gideon and, uh, you know, against 
you know, the town folk who came to kill him. So, I mean, his, his, his dad did his bit there and wouldn't let people anywhere near him and kind of, like, protects him. And uh, it's at this point that Gideon gets another name now, and, and he's called Jeroboam. And uh, the, the reason for that was because the idols that he destroyed, um, you know, he pulled down an altar for Baal. And the name Jeroboam means let Baal contend. And so, in effect, what happened was, uh, you know, that that what he, when the townspeople came to kill him, in effect, what his dad said to him, no, look, he's pulled down Baal's altar. If Baal is so great, you let Baal deal with him, but don't touch him yourself. <coughs> so the town people obviously took that advice and they called Gideon Jeroboam, you know, in, in the hope that, that, that Baal would, would kind of beat him up. And uh, anyway, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him now, Gideon, and he gathers an army together. And, of course, the reason for gathering the army together was obviously because they've got to go and beat up the Midianites who are oppressing them, obviously. And uh, so what he does now is that now he wants another sign. He, <laughs> he wasn't very good at faith, you know, walking by faith, this guy. And uh, this is when you get the laying out of the fleece. I can't remember which way round it was, but what happened was that <coughs> basically he was saying, Lord, if you're with me, this, this was his big thing all the time, Lord, if you really want me to do what you're saying, <laughs> you know, which is a weird... You can, you know, I mean, our problem with guidance is finding out what the Lord wants. All right, so I would say, if there's a guidance problem, it's, Lord, what is your will? This guy wanted signs to assure him that the Lord really did want him to do what he was telling him to do. You, you see, it's not... He knew what God's will was. You know, these fleeces, these <coughs> signs aren't to show him what God's will was. It, you know, they were just to, to, to encourage him because he just had so little faith. And so what he did, he was saying, Lord, if you're with me, <coughs> he was saying, I'm going to put a fleece out, all right? Now, in the morning, let the dew be all around the grass, the grass, but the fleece dry. And it was. So that's quite a good sign. But then he wanted another one the other way round. And he says, right, tomorrow I want the fleece wet. <laughs> and everything else dry from the Jew, and, and it was, God did it. And, uh, you know, so this is not faith. You often hear Christians talk about laying a fleece. They say, I'm putting a fleece out, you know, to find out what God's will is. That is to totally misunderstand what Gideon's doing here. This isn't faith. This is sheer unbelief. This is putting the law to the test. Because he knew what God's will was. It was more or less saying, you know, Lord, You've told me that you want me to lead an army against the Midianites and you're going to give us victory. Lord, you've told me that. Can I have a sign? He knew what God's will was. He just was absolutely full of unbelief. Um, then in chapter 7, you get the actual, now is the time for the battle. He's kind of, you know, got this, this army together. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, he's got an army of 32,000 people. So he's ready to march against the Midianites. And, um, and what the Lord says, he says, look, everyone who's frightened, send them up, because they're only going to discourage you anyway. So if there are people who are fearful and unbelieving, and you remember this was in the law of Moses, wasn't it, before a battle, the idea being that if people are frightened and despondent, they'll pass that on. And I mean, you know, with a leader like Gideon, <laughs> who needs anyone else in the army who's despondent and discouraged? I mean, you know, Gideon could do the discouraging of 20,000 men, you know. So, so, so the Lord said, look, anyone who's discouraged, no, not you, Gideon. You see Gideon, oh, I am, Lord, I want to go home now. But everyone else apart from Gideon, the Lord said, right, if they're discouraged and fearful, send them home. And uh, so 
so so so the army is now reduced down to 10,000. So we've gone from 32,000 to 10,000. 22,000 go home because they're discouraged and they're unbelieving and stuff like that. And um, <clears throat> so, you know, kind of Gideon says, right, okay, off, off, off we go. And Lord, hang on, no, there's still too many of you. You imagine that Gideon scratched his head quite a lot, can't you? There's still too many of us, right, fine. Um, and so what the Lord said, right, okay, get your men, you know, go and find them, have a drink they're marching and they're thirsty have a drink and um and what the lord says to him is that um all the men you know who kneel down and kind of they stick their faces in the river and drink like that all right send them home but all the men who kind of scoop the water up and sort of like lap like a dog keep them and of course the point being is that the ones who knelt down and and, and scoop the water up in their hands like that they were being vigilant they were good soldiers Whereas the ones who just got to the, you know, they stuck their head in the water, all they were thinking about was that they were thirsty. They weren't being vigilant. And so they were bad soldiers. And so the Lord reduced it down like that. And that, that left 300 of them. That was all. So we've gone from 32,000 to, uh, to 300. And, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, I've often said what God uses, he first reduces to nothing. I mean, we, we all identify that, don't we? Um, and then as a kind of um, encouragement, um, God sends Joshua down one night, uh, not, not Joshua, Gideon, Gideon, yeah, Joshua's long dead. Um, Gideon, what he does is that that night he creeps down into the Midianite encampment and under the cover of darkness, obviously he wouldn't, you know, I mean, no one would have known who he was. And he has a wander around and he overhears two Midianites talking and one of them has had this dream and is explaining it to his friend. And Really, the result of this dream was that they both know that God was showing them that Gideon was going to destroy them the next day. And so that was an encouragement to him. So he went down into the enemy camp, only to find out that the enemy knew they were beaten, really. You know. And, uh, you know, so that was kind of a, a bit of a, a help for him. So, you know, at, at least now he's got a bit of encouragement. And uh, so basically, they, they, they proceed to um, have, have the battle. And, um, and when... Gideon and his 300 men kind of like descended on the Midianites. They blew trumpets and shouted and things like that. And kind of God, God made their noise so noisy that the Midianites thought they were outnumbered. So, so like 300 people descended on them, sounding like 3 million. It, it was that kind of thing. And the Midianites, they thought, oh, there's so many of them. We just And they just threw their weapons down and ran. So, you know, so it, it, you know, they thought, oh, we're outnumbered. Well, I suppose they were, weren't they, by God? But, but that, you know, that's, that's how God gave them the victory there. So, anyway, Gideon has delivered them from the Midianites. Now, in chapter 8, uh, some soldiers from Ephraim uh, come to see Gideon. Now, you know, these are Jews, all right, from the tribe of Ephraim. Um, <clears throat> they, they come to see Gideon, and they're angry, because apparently, when, when Gideon was getting the army together, these Ephraimites didn't hear about it in time to get in on the act. So in effect, they, they hadn't, for whatever reason, been given a chance to volunteer for the army that brought about this victory. And yeah, I suppose probably because they were good soldiers, perhaps, I don't know. I mean, a bit of an attitude problem, I think, definitely. I mean, you know, we'll be back to them later on, and you'll see a definite attitude problem by then. But anyway, they turn up, they're cross, you know, why weren't we included in blah, blah, blah. But Gideon, tactfully, and he is tactful, he tactfully diffuses the situation. 
you know, so he kind of like, he praises them up for, you know, for wanting to do their duty, blah, blah, blah. And basically they, they go around, you know, they go away happy. So they came angry, ready for a fight. Sort of, ah, that, that was the mood that they were in. But, but Gideon, he's very tactful with them, and so they go away happy. And then Gideon takes his 300 men and they, they go on various mopping up operations and uh, get involved in various other skirmishes. Um, and then after that, once there's complete peace, Gideon um, ruled for 40 years. And uh, as long as, you know, during that 40 years while he was leading Israel, there was kind of peace. Um, although Gideon, he was quick to remind the people, as he kept doing, that the Lord was their leader and not him. And that was a good aspect of Gideon. I mean, there were good and bad things about him. That's the same for anyone. You know, I mean, it's good to, you know, the Bible's very honest about these people. But the thing is, his unbelief and insecurity about guidance, because that, that, that was his real problem. He was really insecure and, and un unbelieving when it came to guidance. And what he did is that he ended up making an ephod. Now, if you remember the ephod, when we were doing, you know, sort of like the books of Moses, we saw the ephod was all to do with guidance. No one knows how it worked now. I mean, like, you know, we don't know now quite what it was. It was to do with the priest's clothing, all right? But it, it worked in a particular way, God speaking and guidance. And what he does is that <coughs> Gideon makes himself an ephod. You see, and it's all to do with guidance, which was his big problem. The tragedy was he ended up worshipping it as an idol. And, and, and there's a great, a great danger. <coughs> because if you get insecure about guidance, I mean, really, he was wanting signs and wonders all the time, wasn't he? You know, that was his problem. He, he was wanting visual proof the whole time. And it became a snare to him, and he ended up making, you know, worshipping this, this ephod, and, 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 and it, it became an idol to him. But he led fairly well apart from that, and uh, then eventually he dies, and apostasy immediately sets in. <coughs> then in chapter 9, uh, you get one of his sons, Abimelech. Now, Abimelech, now that his dad's dead, fancies himself as the next judge. Now, Abimelech isn't a judge. In fact, he's an anti-judge, if you see what I mean. Nasty character. And he murders all his brothers. Um, you know, this is power politics. He murders all his brothers, and he wants to take over the land. Uh, but one of his brothers, Jotam, escapes. And um, Jotam climbs Mount Gerizim. Do you remember the blessings and the cursings, blah, blah, blah. And he kind of, like, condemns and curses Abimelech for his crimes. And, uh, you know, he does this using this prophetic fable about trees, you know, you'll have to, to read that. And, um, you know, then he starts, you know, he was never heard of again. Now, over a three-year rule, because Abimelech now, as, as it were, became the leader, I mean, he became a real gangster. And if you read chapter 9, I mean, it's just, he got involved in one intrigue after another. And he was, he, he was a gangster, was, you know, simply as that, a dreadful bloke. And eventually, God sent an evil spirit between him and the people. So the people eventually turned on him, and uh, he was killed. So, so, Abimelech there, not a judge, but like an anti-judge, if you see what I mean. And then in chapter 10, we get judge number 6. Um, <coughs> bloke called Tola. Uh, he was raised up to save Israel from we don't know who. And he ruled for 23 years. That's all we know about him. Judge number seven was a guy called Jair. J-A-I-R, how do you pronounce that? Jair. Um, and and he, he judged Israel for 22 years, but that's all we know about him. Uh, so, I mean, not, not too much, um, you know, info here. Th then, 
Israel was, was sold into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. They, they worship Baal. They get into Baal worship again, and so they're handed over to the Philistines and the Ammonites. And for 18 years, they're oppressed by the Philistines and the Ammonites for 18 years, and they cry out to the Lord. And it's funny, because the Lord now speaks to Israel, and he says that he's not going to deliver them anymore. He says, I'll have it with you. She's going on ad infinitum. But then the Lord has pity on them and changes his mind. Now there's the command, there's something for you to think about. Lord said, no, I'm not going to. And then he took pity on them, and then he did deliver them. So one of those instances when the Bible talks about God, you know, saying I'm not going to do something, and then having pity, and then changing his mind and agreeing to do it after all. So um, there are instances of that in the Bible. And then in chapter 11, um, God raises up judge number eight, a guy called Jephthah. And uh, Jephthah, his, his dad was called Gilead. And uh, Gilead had had an affair with a prostitute, you know, been with a prostitute. And uh, Jephthah was the result of his father spending the night with his prostitute. And, uh, you know, so his father cast him out of the family because he was the son of a prostitute. So a bit of a poor old sausage here. You know, not, not a very good start in life, poor old Jephthah. But nevertheless, regardless of, uh, you know, sort of how pathetic and sad one's origins are, you know, because I mean obviously there's lots of people, they've got great sob stories of their early years and that, but you know, I mean it's no problem, the Lord still still uses it. And um, Jephthah ended up leading a kind of like a private army. He was sort of like a mercenary and he ended up with his own private army. That was I suppose what, what he what he liked doing, you know, I suppose. And um, and eventually the elders of Israel approach him sort of like officially and they um ask him to go and sort out the Ammonite king. And, you know, so this was how Jephthah sort of like, you know, became a judge. And uh, so what Jephthah does, and, and he's a strange bloke, Jephthah, because he either does things totally by the book or goes to the extreme of utter stupidity. He, he's a strange guy because the first thing he does is he goes to the Ammonite king and he offers them peace to Now, if you remember when we were doing Deuteronomy and all that, blah, 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 Israel was commanded that when they were going into the Promised Land and once they got into the Promised Land, they would have no mercy on the Canaanites. But any kings, any armies from outside of the land who challenged them, they were to offer them peace terms first. So that if they agreed to peace, there would be no war. That they would only go to war if that nation wanted to fight. And so Jephthah, going completely by the book, completely by the law of Moses, <coughs> even though the Ammonites are oppressing Israel really badly, he officially goes to them and offers them peace terms, doing it all completely by the book. Um, but the Ammonite king said no. So Jephthah went home and, you know, to his kind of army and uh, and the war happened and the Lord gave him victory over the Ammonite king. But before the battle happened, he did something that, that is so unimaginably stupid and tragic as well. Because he vowed, he made a vow that if God gave him victory, that he would sacrifice the first person who greeted him out of his house when he got back after the battle. Which was a stupid thing to do. And this kind of vow was, 
completely against the law of Moses. Can you see what I mean? He was a man of absolute extremes, by the book or absolute stupidity. And the, 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 tragic, you know, the tragic thing is that when he came back from the battle, his daughter, his only child, came out of the house and ran to him, Daddy. And he, he sacrificed her because he wouldn't break his vow. And so, so that is just, you know, a, a stupid and tragic event. All right. Um, chapter 12, all right, the Ephraimites pop up again. Um, and, you know, they come to see Jephthah. And once again, and this was just seemed, seemed to be a habit they got into, when, when Jephthah was gathering his army, to go against the Ammonites, the Ephraimites weren't given the chance. And so they, they turn up again, really bull-headed, and they're angry because they, you know, hadn't had a chance to get in, in the army. And, uh, you know, so they turn up angry. But unlike Gideon, who, when years before, was placed in the same situation, handled it with a bit of wisdom, a bit of tact, a bit of grace, you know, Jephthah was as bull-headed back to them as they were to him. And he pitched into them and told them what he thought of them. And what came out of him was just self-centered arrogance. And this led to civil war between Jephthah's army and the Ephraimites. And as a result of that, 42,000 Ephraimites were killed. It's an absolute tragedy, civil war in Israel. And, um, and after that, he, he judged Israel for a further six years. Um, then, uh, just ending chapter 12, three more judges. Um, the only details we've given are their names and duration of time. Ibsan judged for seven years, Elon for ten, and Abdon for eight. And that, that's all we know about them. So there's judges, um, uh, what's, what's that, nine, ten, and eleven. Um, chapter 13, we now get to the last judge. So the last one now, number 12. And it's good old Samson, uh, possibly one of the, you know, probably the best known. And uh, what was happening at, at, at this point, so, I mean, now we've, we've, we've travelled, you know, about 300 years, you know, that, that's the expanse of time we've covered tonight. And um, <clears throat> Israel is, is now handed over to the Philistines for 40 years, so they're oppressed for 40 years. So, again, the other judges have died, they've got into idolatry and God is judging them. So the Philistines are trampling all over them for 40 years. Um, and there's a bloke called Manoah, Jewish guy called Manoah, and his wife was barren. And uh, the Lord appeared to her one day, and uh, again, you know, this was Jesus in his pre-existence, the Lord appearing as a man, and um, told her that she would have a son and that he'd be a Nazarite, and that he would deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So, um, you know, this is the Lord saying, although you're barren, you're going to have a son, and, and he's going to be the next judge to deliver Israel. And, uh, but she didn't realise it was the Lord, you know, she just thought it was an ordinary man, you know, maybe a prophet or something like that. And uh, she told Manoah about this, alright, you know, that this bloke came and told me this. And, uh, and so Manoah prayed that the man would appear again, because obviously he wanted to know what was going on. So he prayed, you know, and said, Lord, can you make this happen again, because, you know, I want to find out what's, what's happening here. And, uh, and the Lord duly did appear again, but not to Manoah, to his wife. Right. So, so suddenly the Lord's there again. But this time uh, she goes to get Manoah 
and, um, and, and they both realise, now they're both with him, they both realise that this is the Lord himself appearing to them. And um, so she gets pregnant, and um, eventually Samson was, was, was born, and it just says that he grew up with the Lord's blessing. Now, again, in, in, in Samson, we're going to see um, a man very much of, of extremes that God is using. And, uh, and in chapter 14, we now, you know, Samson is, is, is grown up. And, um, and he, he marries a Philistine, which, which was a bit naughty. I mean, there's all kinds of things that I don't... If you were to say, go through everything that Samson did and, and highlight what the Lord was leading him to do and what the Lord wasn't leading him to do. I mean, you get into... I mean, there are so many things that one, one just can't understand. This guy, this is a strange story. Do you know what I mean? And he marries a Philistine. You see, he did so many things that were totally wrong, but the Lord really blessed them. Which isn't an excuse, but this is all things worked together for good, gone mad. This is. I mean, this is grace going too far. Do you know what I mean? Anyway, he married a Philistine woman. And, um, and then he kills a lion with his bare hands. I mean, you know, I do press-ups. <laughs> well, not for Samson. No, he'd go out in the morning and he'd just catch a lion and kill it with his bare hands. That, that was his idea of fun. And, uh, and, 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 and he gave the Philistines a riddle. He, he liked writing riddles, you see. So he killed this lion. And, um, you know, and he, he challenges the Philistines. He says, here's a riddle for you. Let's see if you can work it out. And, um, and what happens is that his wife, this Philistine woman whom he's married, she gets the answer out of him. And she goes and tells them, all right. Now, when Samson found out that she told them the answer, he, he got mad. And he went off and he killed 30 Philistines. <laughs> you know, I mean... <laughs> I say, I do sit up sometimes, you know. But this bloke, he goes out and kills 30 Philistines and, and, and then leaves his wife and goes back to mum and dad. So, so he leaves her and he's, he's off home. Then you get to chapter 15 and a bit of time passes and, uh, and he thinks, oh, I'll go and see my wife again. So he goes to visit her uh, at her parents. But when he gets there, he, 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 he finds out that her father assuming that he didn't want to know anymore, because in effect he left her. So he goes to visit her, only to find out that her father, assuming that he wasn't interested anymore, had given her in marriage to one of his mates. So she got married again to someone else. But he didn't like that. And what he does, he catches 300 foxes, right? And he sets light to their tails. And he releases them through the Philistines' fields and completely wipes out their harvest. Because, of course, as the foxes, their tails are alight. They, they just run off in all directions through, through the fields and their tails set fire. And the Philistines lose their harvest that year. And, uh, you know, so they're not, they're not very happy. Their response is that a lynch mob goes to his ex-wife's house. They get her and her father and they burn them to death. They set fire to them. Um, and so Samson, in response to their response, goes out and kills a load more of them. I mean, this is, you know, well, I'm, this is, well, it's, I'm glad we live in New Testament times, aren't you? So it's all I, so I would not want a ministry like this. I'm happy 
stop drawing the line at press-ups, do you know what I mean? Killing lions and philistines, wouldn't... Um, and so, so what happens now, because I mean you've just got tit-for-tat killings that going on, I mean, you know. The philistines, what they do is they approach the men of Judah now, and assuming that the men of Judah are oh, frightened of the philistines, because remember the philistines are top dogs, they're, they're running the show in Canaan at this time. And uh, the philistines approach the men of Judah and say, and get them to hand Samson over to them. And so, in fact, the men of Judah see their chance here. And what they do um, is that they trick the Philistines. And so they get Samson, all right, and they kind of, you know, tie him up, okay, um, and then hands him over to them. So this massive group of Philistines come into Judah, and the men of Judah hand Samson to them, all, all bound up, you know, so Samson's all, all tied up. As he goes amongst them, he just breaks, you know, the bonds that he's tied up with. And he, he, he grabs this jawbone of a donkey and he kills a thousand of them. You know, just like that. And, and that place where that happened was, was, was called Enhakori, which, which means jawbone hill. <laughs> which I suppose is kind of like a, a Philistine's boot hill, really, isn't it? But like, I love that, jawbone hill. You can just imagine Samson, you know, with his jawbone, striding up saying, oh, hell, you know, hell, just going down the corral, you know, and, and he kills a thousand of them on jawbone hill. And uh, after that, he gets thirsty. And the Lord miraculously causes water to appear in the desert so he can drink it. Then in chapter 16... He goes down to, to Gaza, which is right at the heart of Philistine territory. And uh, so, so, remember our map last week, he goes down to Farnham in Hampshire. That's, that's where the Philistine territory was. And he spends the night with a prostitute. And the Philistines find out, and they surround her house. They find out he's there, and they surround the house. He realises they know he's there. And he, he comes out in the middle of the night. This is, you know, in Gaza. And they're all surrounding the house. He marches out of the house. He, he tears down the, the gates, the pillars of the city gates. And um, he, he marches off with one over his shoulder out of the city. You just imagine this Philistine crowd who'd surrounded the house because they wanted to get him. He, caught, like, he bursts out the door and, and just rips the city gates to shreds and, and one pillar on each shoulder and just walks out and you can imagine their jaws hitting sort of like oh well who's going to tackle him first ah right okay and of course you know no one goes within a hundred miles of him then he falls in love with a philistine woman called delilah and the infamous affair begins um in incidentally are you spotting his weakness yet women yes Yes, very good. I thought we'd have been better at spotting that weakness in this fellowship. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, Samson, I mean, prostitutes, Philistine women, you name it, he, he did not get himself under control. And what happens is that, that, that her countrymen, because she, she's a Philistine, and he falls in love with her, her countrymen, they, they pay her to find out the secret of his strength. And, um, and what, she, you know, she does three times she quizzes him to find out the secret of his strength. And each time he lied to her. And uh, what she did is she, then she brought out the if you loved me approach. Now, all married men know this when your wife pulls out. If you loved me, 
approach, you know, last resort to try and get what they want. And there's, there's a wonderful, wonderful verse here. Verse 16 is this. And I'm, I'm you know, the, with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. Now, we know all about that, don't we, us, us men? Now, one thing to say here, to just draw attention to, when people think about Samson, the picture everyone has is almost like the Incredible Hulk, you know, the Incredible Hulk on TV, like when he transformed, like his shirt ripped off with all the muscles and stuff yeah. like that. Now, the thing is to realise, if he had been a Mr. Muscles, why would people have been trying to find out the secret of his strength? He wasn't muscly. There was nothing, he was just physically the same as anyone else. You see, his strength was a gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's important to realise that. This is why Delilah is trying to find out the secret of his strength. Because he wasn't Mr. Muscles, all right? If he was Mr. Muscles, you know, I mean, if Lou Ferrinu, you know, the bloke who played the Incredible Hulk, I mean, if he walked in here, you know, and sort of like, you know, sort of like, you know, picked a few of us up and, you know, just picked a few of us up. If we say, oh, he's so strong, I wonder why. Well, it'd be, you know, the muscles rippling. We'd know why he was so strong. But Samson, no, ordinary physique. It was a gift of the Holy Spirit. It was the Lord with him. And uh, eventually he gives in. And because, you know, men do. And he gave in and he told her. And, and, and you know, he said it, it, it was the fact that uh, he had long hair, the fact that he was a Nazarite, that he'd never had a razor um, on his hair. And, uh, you know, the, like the long hair signifying his relationship with the Lord, his faithfulness to the Lord. And uh, so now she gets him fast asleep on her lap. I mean, the poor guy, he loves her. She didn't love him. I mean, she, you know, but... And, uh, and then, when he's asleep on her lap, you know, imagine her singing lullabies, you know, stuff, and he falls asleep, and then her mob come in and they shave his head. And, um, and because of that, the Lord leaves him, because he's by now so totally out of fellowship. The Lord leaves him, and, um, and, and therefore his, his strength goes, and now he's just ordinary strength. And um, then other Philistines come, and they chain him up, and they, they gouge his eyes out, and they, 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 they put him to slave labour back in Gaza, which was where he'd ripped the, you know, the, uh, the gates of the city off. And, uh, you know, so that was how he ended up. But, of course, his hair was beginning to grow back. And then what happens is that the Philistines, they have a big celebration, a big kind of sacrifice and party in their temple. And it was, it was to give thanks to their idol um, for delivering Samson into their hands. Uh, the particular god, the particular idol that, that they did this thanksgiving, was a Tadagan, who, who, who was um, a fish god. But one of their other gods was, of course, Baal, because Baal was one of the main idols, um, you know, throughout the um, uh, throughout Canaan. And uh, you know, just 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 to give you, um, you know, sort of added tidbit of info here, um, they actually called him Baal Zebal. And they, they called him that because it means exalted Baal. So Zebel meant exalted in their language. So they called Baal, Baal Zebel. Now, in later years, Israel took the mick out of this name, all right, because, of course, they knew that Baal didn't exist. And so they took the mick out of idolatry in later years, and they parodied the name from Baal Zebel to Baal Zebub. Zebub is the Hebrew word for flies. Baal is the Hebrew word for Lord. It meant Lord of the Flies. So what they were saying is, 
that they were parodying this name, Exalted Baal. They were saying, yeah, Lord of the Flies. Can you see? Because they're saying he's no god at all. And what happened is that when Baalzebub is transliterated into Greek, it becomes Beelzebub and was later used as a name for Satan himself. So I just chuck that in. That is the history of how Satan came to be referred to by the Jews as Beelzebub. So, you know, no extra charge for that. And uh, so any, anyway, back, back, back to the big party that they're having. And, and, and they, they bring Samson in to mock him. And, uh, you know, they've got him chained up between two pillars. Now his strength is coming back. And what he does now is that he actually pushes the pillars down and the temple collapses on them. And so, in actual fact, he killed more Philistines in his, in his death than he did in his lifetime. So there's kind of a picture there of last-minute last repentance, because he got totally out of fellowship with God, but, but now he comes back into fellowship, and even though his, what you say, his life and ministry has gone totally wrong, nevertheless, all things work together for good. And, you know, as a result of that, the Philistine oppression um, over Israel actually ended, even though he, you know, he succeeded in his mission only when he actually died and then his, his family come and get his body and uh, bury him back in his, uh, his father's tomb. Um, now with, with that the chronology of Judges ends with that chapter alright and the next few chapters form a kind of epilogue it's, it's kind of stories that come from different times during the period of the Judges the story's not being about the judges, all right? So the next few chapters are rather like um, a postscript. Now, um, so in chapter 17, in verse, verse 6, sums up this period. And it says, In those days Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit. Uh, and we've seen that even the people that God raised up to deliver Israel, I, I mean, what a strange bunch, you know? I mean, everyone did as... as, as he saw fit. And, and that sums up this era of, of Israel's history, complete anarchy in the absence of ongoing, consistent, godly leadership. Yeah, the, the, you know, there are times when they've got godly leaders and things are okay, but by and large, bad leadership and it's anarchy and rebellion. Right, now chapter 17 then goes on to tell the story of a guy called Micah. And um, Micah, he was a bloke, you know, he, he, he nicked things from his mum. He was a thief, and he even nicked things from his mum. And he kept idols in his house as well. So he lived with his mum, he nicked things from his mum, and they had loads of idols in the house. And, uh, and then one day, a wandering Levite passed, you know, this Levite wandering passed, and Micah asked him to come in and to be his private priest, you know, like for his household. And the, what you've got here is that what that tells us about Israel all through this time is that Micah had idols in the house, but when a priest came, he wanted the Lord's blessing by having his own private priest. And what you've got here is syncretism. You've got a bit of the Lord, a bit of the devil. You've got a bit of truth, a bit of error. You've got a bit of the kingdom, a bit of the world. Can you see? It's not all idolatry and nothing of the Lord, it's mixture. It's mixing the two. That was the sin of, of Israel during this, this time. So we've got, you know, in chapter 17, this bloke Micah, he's now got his own private Levite priest installed in his household. Now, in chapter 18, it suddenly jumps, and you'll see why in a moment, to the story of the relocation of the tribe of Dan. Do you remember, all right, that Dan originally was going to have where the Philistines were? 
right, you know, they were reading down to Basingstoke and Farnham in Hampshire, boom, boom, but they blew it, they couldn't take it. So they relocated to the other end of the Promised Land, diametrically the opposite corner, and they landed up in the north around Cromer and Sheringham type, you know, north, Norfolk coast. Now, what we've got here is that while the tribe of Dan are migrating from the southwest up to the northeast, they pass by Micah's place, right? So now they hit up against Micah. And what they do, uh, those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. They steal his idols. Because Micah had nicked them from his mum. So they nicked them from Micah. But they offer the Levite a better deal than Micah has. So the Levite goes with them to be their priest. So now Micah is divested of everything and the Danites, tribe of Dan, take it all up to the North Norfolk coast. So they pass through Micah's place, they nick all his idols and his Levite. Poor old Micah, but teach him, he should have known better, shouldn't he? Now, what's interesting is the Levite turns out to be Jonathan, who was the son of Gershon, who was the son of Moses. So that Levite priest was Moses' grandson. So that little story was early on in the period of the Judges. And of course, this, this is summing up, this postscript, is summing up the sorry state in Israel when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now then, in chapter 19, we get another story of another Levite who was travelling through Gibeah in Benjamin. This is the Greater London area. He had his servant with him and his concubine. Now, in this context, a priest with a concubine, she was virtually his wife. Not quite, but virtually. That's the sort of relationship you're looking at. And what had happened was, she had been unfaithful to him and they'd only just reconciled. So it was a love affair that she'd been unfaithful, but he'd forgiven her and they were back together again. And here they are passing through Gibeah in the, 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 the tribe of Benjamin's land, Greater London. Now what happens is that they, they, they stop off overnight and an old man takes them in. And, and he says, look, I'm going to take you in tonight. You can't stay outside. It's too dangerous. And the reason that it's dangerous is because here you have a virtual repeat of the Sodom and Gomorrah story. And the Benjaminites are totally given over to sexual violence, homosexuality, you name it. And what happens is that the old man, you know, all the, the Benjaminites, you know, sort of like surround the house and say, you know, send the priest out so we can have sex with him, all right? And the old man won't. But eventually what happens, they get hold of uh, the Levite's wife or concubine and they rape her until she's dead. And what he then does is he takes her body home with him and he cuts her body into 12 pieces and he sends one piece of her body to every <coughs> tribe in Israel telling them what the tribe of Benjamin have done. And then in chapter 20, an all-Israelite army, i.e. all the tribes in coalition, are dispatched to Benjamin to demand that the, the men who have done this in Gibeah be handed over to them for punishment. But Benjamin, the tribe as a whole, refuses to do it. They won't hold them over. You know, they won't hand them over. And so there's a three-day battle ensues, and the tribe of Benjamin was thoroughly, you know, beaten up by the other 12 tribes because they wouldn't hand the culprits over um, for punishment. But, but thousands died on each side. I mean, another really tragic event. And at the end of it, all the Benjaminite women were killed and only 600 men of the tribe of Benjamin were left. That is all that was left of them. And then in chapter 21, as a result of this, the rest of Israel vowed that they wouldn't give any of their women to Benjamin because they considered that what the tribe had done was so evil. 
And yet, on the other hand, they realised that because there was only 600 Benjaminite men left, that the tribe would virtually become extinct because they had no women to procreate with. And the rest of Israel wanted them repopulated as well. So what they did to get round this, because they couldn't break their oath, they kind of made the oath, but then they, 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 they couldn't kind of, you know, they, they had to find a way to get round it, and they did it in two ways. The first way is that there'd been um, a, a kind of a holy assembly at Mizpah, and uh, the, the men of Jabesh Gilead, which, which was of the tribe of half Manasseh, the Transjordan tribe, the other side of the Jordan, the Jews who lived in Jabesh Gilead refused to turn up to this special assembly. And so what they did as punishment, because that went against the law, they should have done, and they didn't. So an all-Israeli army went to Jabesh Gilead, and they killed all the men in the city, and they brought all their virgins back and gave them to the tribe of Benjamin. So the men had people to marry, but there still wasn't enough to go round. So what happened then is that Benjamin got the rest of the women they needed by going up to Shiloh, where there was a special, you know, kind of like, you know, feast going on, and, uh, and kidnapped the women that they needed. Now, because they'd kidnapped the women, I mean, but the men of Shiloh had put them, you know, they were quite happy with it. Because, um, because Benjamin kidnapped the women, the other tribes technically hadn't given them to them. Can you see? So they got the women they needed, but the rest of Israel didn't have to break their oath, because the oath, so, you know, all a bit, you know, kind of, you know. And the narrative ends in chapter 21, by, by, you know, sort of like saying how, again, each person did what was right in, 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 in their own eyes. And uh, so it's apostasy, anarchy, spiritual defeat. That's the story of Judges, because there wasn't godly and consistent leadership over Israel. So the end of the period of the Judges, which chronologically ended with the death of Samson, that brings us to around 1100 BC. So, so we've covered 300 years. Now, um, we have got time, I planned to do it, the next book, the Book of Ruth. We have to do this very, very quickly because we're running out of time. But the reason that the Book of Ruth, it's only very small, the reason it comes next is because what the story is about occurs during the time of the Judges, alright? So that is why Ruth is, is put on the end of Judges. So here we are, let's, let's go very, very quickly. And this is the book where the Old Testament homes in not just on Israel as God's chosen people for the Messiah, but now homes in on the family that Messiah was going to come from, all right? The family <laughs> of King David, all right? Because the point is, Ruth was one of the ancestors of King David. So, chapter one, and we're going to really belt through this really quickly. There was a Jew called Elimelech, all right? And he was married to Naomi. They had two sons, Marlon and Kilion. Now, they lived in Bethlehem, but on account of a famine that hit that area, they left Bethlehem and went down to live in Moab, where there was plenty of food. So the journey they're doing was north of Surrey, south of London, down through Canterbury to the Dover area in Kent. Right, that, that's the journey that they're doing. So they go down into Ammon. While they're there, the two sons marry two Moabite girls. One is called Orpah, one is called Ruth. Then Elimelech, while they're living there, dies, and then his two sons die. So you've got um, Naomi left, the wife, and, or, or the mum, and you've got Orpah and Ruth, who were the Moabite girls who married 
her two sons. So the husband is dead, the two sons are dead. Now, on hearing that the famine was over, Naomi prepares to go back um, to Bethlehem, back into the land. And she urges Orpah and Ruth to return to their country, to leave her, because they'd have more chance for a good life if they did that. So Orpah does that. She goes back to her own family in Ammon. Uh, but Ruth decides to stick with Naomi and goes with her back into Bethlehem. And you get that lovely thing in verses 16 and 17 where Ruth says, your people shall be my people, your God will be my God, where you go, I go. A real sense of loyalty. And of course, the point is Ruth has become a believer and that's why she wants to go back to Bethlehem. And once home, Naomi, which means pleasant, that's what her name means, changes her name to Mara and that means bitter. Now in chapter 2 it transpires that Naomi had a relative on her late husband's side called Boaz. And one day, Ruth went to collect grain in a field behind the harvesters, and the poor were allowed to do that, all right? And, um, and she found herself in one of his fields. She knew nothing about this bloke being a relative of Naomi's. And uh, Boaz turns up and, and asks his foreman who this girl is. And because um, he'd, he'd heard about her, and you know, all the good things, her devotion to Naomi, etc., etc. And he befriends her, and he tells the workers to uh, let her glean in, in his fields all she wanted to and that the workers you know, would be watching out for her. So he says to her, feel free to come here anytime, get as much food as you like and I've told my men to keep their eye open for you. And then he, he tells his men to drop really big sheaves for her because the poor could gather what the harvesters dropped. And so he says, look, drop really big bits for her so that she can get plenty of, you know, to take back to, to Naomi. So, and that day, she goes back to Naomi and tells her about Boaz. And it's only then that, that, that Ruth discovers that Boaz was a relative of Naomi's and was one of their kinsman redeemers. Now, the kinsman redeemers, or the Avengers of Blood, or the Goels in the Hebrew, they were members of your family who would right wrongs that happened in the family. If someone died, they'd pursue the killer. But also, if... If, if, if a girl, if her husband had died, the brother of the husband or a relative of the husband would marry the girl. So the point was that Boaz was potentially a kinsman redeemer to marry Ruth, all right. And, uh, and, and Naomi tells, tells Ruth what a wonderful man he is. In effect, she's saying, look, what a catch he'd be. Because he loves the Lord and he's, you know, I mean, he really is a strong, consistent believer. And so throughout the harvest, Ruth sticks into the fields of Boaz really, really close. Then in, in chapter 3, Naomi says, look, it's, it's time, it's time to get brave, Ruth, all right? You've, you've, you've got to ask him, is, is he prepared? Is he going to marry you? You know, make that approach, you see. Would he be prepared to be their kinsman redeemer? And uh, so, so Ruth makes the approach and she does it by lying at his feet and, you know, sort of like they're having a rest period, like siesta. She lay at his feet and asked him if, if she'd cover, if he would cover her with his garment. And this is, the, there's that chorus, isn't there? Cover me, cover me, let the borders, mantle of your borders cover me, or something like that. It comes from this idea, and that in him doing that, he was saying, I'm covering you with my love. I'm going to take, I'm going to redeem you out of the difficult situation you're in. And uh, so, so she, in effect, she's requesting marriage. Would he do his kinsman redeem a bit? He didn't have to, it was voluntary. But obviously he, he'd fallen in love with her and, and he was thrilled at the idea anyway. And, uh, but, but he told her that there was another relative on Elimelech's side who had priority over him under the law and that they had to go to him first. And then in chapter 4, 
uh, Boaz seeks out that bloke and uh, you know he says look do you want to do this and the bloke said no I don't want to marry her so answer the prayer there and uh, so so Boaz and Ruth they marry and they, they have a son called Obed, and if you keep, keep going down, you'll find that from their family, King David appeared, and that is the importance of this book. And, uh, but it's obviously a beautiful ending there for Naomi, Ruth, and, and Boaz, and it ends with the genealogy down to King David, because that is the vital importance of this story. So what we've got here is that the Messianic family is now established as being from the tribe of Judah, and this happens in the town of Bethlehem where Messiah was eventually going to be born and also there's an allegory there in that story the kinsman redeemer how he redeemed Ruth out of the difficult situation she was in there's an allegory of the gospel there but I haven't got time to bring it out and so the important thing here is that Ruth ended up the great 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 grandmother of King David and um, and interestingly enough that uh, Boaz, his mother, was Rahab the harlot, who was in um, Jericho, who rescued the spies. And so what we've got here is that she, she married a bloke called Salmon. And I think there's something fishy about him. <laughs> if you bought him some cigarettes, I suppose he'd be smoked Salmon, wouldn't he? Um, but she married a bloke called Salmon, and they had Boaz. And so the point is that Jesus, although a Jew, if you go back, he had all these Gentiles in his genealogy because, of course, salvation is first to the Jews, but it's to the Gentiles as well. So Rahab was a prostitute and a Gentile, all right? Ruth was a Moabitess. But here they are, ancestors of Jesus, and that's the importance of that particular story. So what we've got here in this story in Ruth is that now the Bible, from Ruth onwards, is homing in now on the particular family, not the particular nation of Israel, but now the particular family within that nation that Messiah is eventually going to come from. Because, of course, the book that we're going to be doing next, 1 Samuel and then 2 Samuel, deals with the eventual rise to kingship of David. And David was the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson of Ruth, and David was, of course, the great, 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 great times 20-odd grandfather of Jesus. You see, so now we're at that point in the Bible where we're homing in on the actual messianic family. We've got the people, Israelites, the nation of Israel. We've got the tribe, Judah. Now we've got the actual family. And it all kicked off with uh, Gentile women, one of them indeed being a prostitute. And this beautiful love story, which also acts as an allegory for what the Gospel is all about. Because the truth of the matter is, why is it that you and I are in the Kingdom of God? Well, I'll tell you, it's because the Lord's fallen in love with us. That's the truth of it. In the way that Boaz fell in love with Ruth, God has fallen in love with us. And he died so that he could as it were, throw his garment over us and cover us with his love and bring us into redemption to buy us out of the difficult situation we were in. Ruth was destitute. She didn't have a husband. She didn't have a father. She was destitute. She was redeemed out of that because Boaz loved her. Our circumstance is that we were in the slave market of sin, as Dave prayed earlier. We've been bought out, redeemed out of the slave market of sin, and now we're in the family of God because God loves us so much, and he just couldn't resist us. That's incredible, isn't it, that the Lord loves us like that, but that is how the Lord loves us.
you know, he, he's absolutely head over heels in love with us, and that is why he's redeemed us. That is why he is our kinsman redeemer. So, that's the book of Judges, book of Ruth. Next time, we move on to 1 Samuel.